0: Okay good afternoon. We're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3 to begin with. please, Exodus and Chapter 3. The <coughs> subject is exaltation, which I think is a bit simpler to understand. And so we want to think about our worship, Of God and the exaltation of God within it. So, Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked. And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside, and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then further down, please, in verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you now over to the book of Psalms please in Psalm 34 verse 1 I will bless the Lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my mouth my soul shall make her boast in the Lord the humble shall hear thereof and be glad Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And then our final reading is over into Luke's Gospel again and chapter 1. We're back at where we started off last night in our reading, Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. Mary said my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my saviour for he hath regarded the low state of his handmaiden for behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed for he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name now that's our reading I trust the Lord will bless it to us in Psalm 34, the first few verses that we read, it said this I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord, the humble shall, be, shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Now, I don't know if you um, ever had a microscope. I can remember getting a microscope as a Christmas present and it never worked, or at least I could never make it work. And with these wee glass slide things, and anyway, I don't know if it was a very expensive microscope I got or not, but you may have a magnifying glass. I don't know if you have, it might be a strange thing for you to have, you certainly probably don't have it on you. But um, if you have a magnifying glass, you understand this, that the purpose of a magnifying glass is to magnify an object and it is to make that which is small bigger to the side well that's not what is made here in psalm 34 so you need to take the idea of that and put it to one side if you perhaps, I don't know if you've got one of these, uh, maybe you do if you have a telescope then your telescope forms or is for a different purpose Your telescope is to take something not necessarily small, in fact unlikely small but something that is at a distance and bring it close so that you can see it as it is Now that's the right idea in the word magnify in the Bible So when we are to magnify the Lord it's not that the Lord is small and we need to make him bigger so that we can see him It is that the Lord needs to be brought to where we are so that we can see him as he is. It's a telescope and not a microscope, is the idea. You see, the microscope is really applicable to us when we magnify ourselves. We take that which is small and we want to make ourselves bigger. But not so with God. We can't make him bigger than he actually is. And so it is to appreciate, it is to exalt, it is to lift up the one who is already great, so that we might see him as he is. That is in the idea of exaltation, to lift up. Psalm 99 and verse 5 puts it this way, Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. And that word exalt there is a translation of a Hebrew imperative. That means it's a command that means literally lift up. So the idea is that in our worship, the Lord must be lifted up. He is the one that our focus is upon and by our worship or in our worship whether it's oral or whether it is in acts of service or in our everyday work in whatever ways that we seek to serve the Lord we need to magnify him in the biblical sense we need to put him on display we need to exalt him so that the focus is on on him the attention is on him the glory belongs to him and we need not do that should not do that for ourselves and so magnify the Lord when you come to this um, idea of the greatness of God last night I mentioned this expression the aseity of God and I was just mentioning if you weren't here that I'd been um, a wee while ago looking into a little study <coughs> excuse me on the attributes of God and reading around about it and I came across that title and I didn't really know what the title meant And I'd never heard it, and so began to read into it. And when you think about the the character of God and the greatness of God, that's why I read in Exodus chapter 3. To just enforce in our minds just how great our God is. And Exodus 3 to me is is a wonderful snapshot of that. It's just a little part of it. It's one of the, what the theologians call the theophanies of our Old Testament, where God makes himself apparent to people in certain ways, his presence apparent to people. People knew God was there, and he revealed himself in certain ways, and they call these um, the theophanies of God, and this is one of them. Moses is in the wilderness, if you don't know the the circumstance surrounding it, the context. Moses, the servant of God, he's in the wilderness and he sees a sight that draws his eye. And he sees a bush that is burning. Now that would not be unusual in the wilderness, but what drew his eye was that the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was unaffected in that it was not consumed and so the narrative unfolds and we've read sections of it and he approaches this and God speaks to him out of that bush and he tells Moses to take his shoes from off his feet because the ground in which he was standing was holy ground now we know that God's presence was there because on other occasions when people bowed down before angels they were told to stand up not to do that sort of thing that was reserved for God alone You don't worship the creature, you worship the creator. And so Moses is in conversation with God as God speaks to him out of that bush. And God gives Moses service to fulfil for him. And of course it is to lead the people of God out of captivity, out through the Red Sea and so forth. But as Moses is expressing his fears... In or his inability to fulfil that service he, he says that he needs to know the name of God to go to the people of God and say, say the name of God who sent him. And God then speaks as, he, as we read. And Moses is asking about the name of God and God tells Moses his name. Now The scholars, those who know about these things, or tell us that they know about these things, say this that the the verbal form of the Hebrew language there indicates that Moses is not just asking for the name, he's asking for the meaning of the name. (coughs) And God reveals his name, and Moses learns something about God. And I want to just share that with you what is in the name? I am that I am. Here's a snapshot of the greatness of our God. Two things we're going to learn here briefly. Number one, God's self-existence. And number two, God's eternal self-existence. Now, don't be put off by concepts like that. Allow your mind to focus on them and allow your mind to go with it to stretch your thinking about the character and person of God. Don't be put off and don't shut your mind down when you hear words you don't understand. I've never heard before, like I did with assiduity, or you have concepts that you struggle with. Wrestle with them, think about them, ponder them, ask people about them, read about them, and find out about them. Find out. This is a little bit of what I found out when I read around the subject of God's aseity for this is what it is his self-existence. And the self-existence of God expressed in that title of aseity is the idea of just this that God and it's in this name has always existed. And he exists in himself and from himself. He is, as one writer put it, the great uncaused cause of all things. He's the self-existent God, the God who has life in himself, doesn't derive it from another. He's not dependent on another for his existence. He doesn't need another for his existence. What a beautiful picture of it in this bush that burned and was not consumed. Where we say there's a picture of the holiness of God and no doubt it is, but it's more than that think about the fire that burns the fire burns independently of the bush it's not using the as fuel it's rather this the fire exists in and of itself and it's seen in the bush but it's not dependent on the bush This is an image, yes, of the holiness of God, but an image of the self-existence of God who has life in himself. And he doesn't need fuel as if it is to sustain that life around him. That's in that title, I am. That's what that means. But it's not all that it means. And God is saying to Moses, I'm the self-existent one. Look at the bush that's burning and is not consumed. That's like me and he derives or he requires I should say no one and nothing apart from himself not just to exist but to exist in the fullness of his person in the community of the Godhead he has all he requires and desires of love and of grace and of fellowship and everything is there within the Godhead he does not need anything or anyone else which makes, by the way, his creation of us and his redemption of us all the more remarkable. All the more remarkable. We need him. He does not need us. Never has done. But yet in his love, he desired a people from himself and he created and redeemed and we are that people. And think of it, the very very cause of the redemptive work of God sitting in this room. But this is the greatness of God. He's not small. You don't need a microscope to enlarge him. He's large in every sense of the word. He's great. And his greatness we can hardly comprehend. And so this is in the I Am. This is a title of God which then is peppered through scripture. You see it time and time again. And he refers to himself in Isaiah 40, particularly in the book of Isaiah, by the way, but in Isaiah 44, verse 6 Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. There is nothing before him, there is nothing after him. There is no God but him. Again, listen to Isaiah 48, verse 12 through 13. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Mine hand hath laid the foundation of the earth, my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. And this language isn't you know, reserved just for the Old Testament. You go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. The Lord Jesus says this. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. It's as if language is just running away with John as he writes these things, expressing the greatness of God. You know, sometimes, I'm thinking of younger folk, you know, when you're identifying, which isn't a great word to use these days, as a Christian, that is when you're testifying as a Christian and um, you have to and the word right. You're, you're standing beside the Lord Jesus Christ as if it were you're, you're taking your stand beside him as a Christian Samuel's going to do that tomorrow in his baptism uh, and what you're doing is you're saying I belong to Christ I believe in God and you feel very small because no one else does no one else in your class no one else in your year Maybe no one else in your school. You're standing there and you feel alone and small. Well, you may be small, but your God is far from small. And as you get a, a glimpse and a taste, and as you get a, a, an appreciation of just how great your God is, remember this you're standing beside a God who is greater and the sum parts of all his creation this is your God he is self-existent and now you can go home and you can tell your folks I know all about the aseity of God and find out if they do and you might get a surprised. surprise so the aseity of God but not only that he is self-existent we also learn I am that I am what he was saying is just this I am I am self-existent and eternally so eternally so Psalm 90 verse 1 to 2 says this, Lord, you've been a dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. See, the vast scope of that throughout the ages of eternity. (coughs) What do we mean by that, that God is eternal? I used to struggle with that a wee bit. And the more you did into it, Um, your struggle in your mind doesn't go away it's just amazing to think about anything that's eternal is difficult I've said it means that he has no beginning and that's true it's true of nothing and no one else by the way it's only true of God he has no ending he has no ending but he has also no succession of moments unlike you and me You've come along here and we are living in time, people of time, defined by time. Time has shaped us, made us, and we describe ourselves in relation to time. So you say you're old or young to do with time. You tell the stories of your life and they are all embedded in time. You as a person have been shaped and changed in time. Not so with God. God created time. He is not defined by that which he created. And this is difficult to get your head round about. So we experience things like seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and years, and so forth. And it is on a timeline. So we can't experience tomorrow before tomorrow actually comes within the timeline of history. We can't go ahead of time in our experience. But God is so different. There's never been a point, and that's a weak way to put it, when God did not know everything that would ever happen or could ever happen. It's all known to God. He exists outside of time. So difficult to actually express. And that's why Peter puts it in this sort of language. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Time means a different thing to God than it does to us. It doesn't shape him. He hasn't grown within a time span. He hasn't changed within a time span. He is eternally the same. He is the unchanging, self-existent God of eternity. It's so incredibly difficult to think about. And so it should be. I am so glad that we worship a God who is bigger than the sum of our intellects. That we can't actually say, I fully understand him. God is greater than the sum of all his creation. One way to put it this way, you might think, and we're on to beams of light again, you might think of it like this, that God's essence is refracted. Do you all know what refraction is? Surely first, second year, remember learning about that. You might think of it like this, that God's essence is refracted into many attributes in the same way that light is refracted into the whole spectrum of many different colors. And so you see the refraction of light and you realise that life is actually made up of all of that. But when you see it, it's just, there's a unity to it but that unity as many composite parts to put it clumsily. Same with God. Such is his greatness. He is eternal. Well that's enough of that because that could take you down a rabbit warren of lots and lots of things and it would be very um, profitable. And I'm really encouraging you particularly those with the fertile minds of youth, to dig into these things. Let not that be subjects that you put beyond you. It's not beyond you. Far from it. And the attributes of God, the character of God, the person of God is our most fruitful and profitable study. Find resources that are helpful, reliable, readable, and dig into them. Dig into them. Well, if God is so great, how do we exalt him? Number one, and this is what we've been thinking about, we praise him with our mouths. We do, we praise him with our mouths. Psalm 34 verse 1 says that I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 107 verse 1 and 2 O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good for his mercy endureth forever, let the redeemed of the Lord do what? Say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's us. Let us say so. Let us say these things. Let us sing these things. Let us talk about these things. The mercy and goodness of God. Isaiah 25 and verse 1. O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name. For thou hast done wonderful things thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth psalm 50 verse 23 here's probably the best known um, expression of this truth who so offereth praise glorifieth me that's what God said now, you know we're getting the redemption hymns out and, and game got all but just the one uh, tune right and uh, someone helped me from the back there and uh, I have that job for anything and um, we're singing here and some of us are singing well and some are not singing well. And we're all singing behind masks and we can hardly hear us and all the rest of it. And you wonder, what's the point? You know, is it? Should we just scrap and sing? No. Because Psalm 50, verse 23 says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And in the singing and in the conversation, And in the preaching, preaching is worship as well. And in the acts and actions of daily work and life and all the rest of it. Whoso offereth praise glorifies him. Secondly, we praise him with our mouths, first of all, that exalts the Lord. Secondly, we praise him from our hearts. We've seen this already. We saw that in Psalm 34, verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Comes from deep within. Mary, what did she say in Luke chapter 1? My soul doth magnify the Lord. Comes from deep within. And so we're learning that we praise with our lips. Yes, we should. And we praise with our lips because we are praising from our hearts. Thirdly, thanksgiving magnifies the Lord. According to Psalm sixty nine and verse thirty. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This is a little expression. Gratitude glorifies God. Now I don't come up with I usually borrow some of these expressions when I find them uh, written by other people. I actually dreamt that up and then I thought that was fantastic, and then I read it somewhere else. (laughs) after I'd dreamt it up, honestly I did and I thought, oh, another 3,000 folk get the same idea gratitude glorifies God that's what's saying here in Psalm 69 and that's true isn't it it puts God on display it exalts God gratitude, thanksgiving, think about it after all, the scripture tells us it's better to give than to receive givers are more glorious than receivers benefactors more glorious than beneficiaries, that's the principle so when we thank God, what we do we acknowledge and display that he's the giver and we are those who receive he is the benefactor so we exalt him as such and we put ourselves in the proper place as the recipients as the beneficiaries, but he's the giver. He is the one who's the benefactor. We place him there in our heart and we thank him. We pay him the high compliment of thanksgiving and expressing our indebtedness to him. Psalm 35 verse 27 says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favour my righteous cause ye let them say continually let the Lord be magnified which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant now if you are taking notes take a note of that Psalm 35 verse 27 (coughs) let the Lord be magnified and so forth if you went to the previous verse you have a contrast let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at mine hurt Let them be clothed with shame and dishonour that magnify themselves against me. You've got a contrast in the two verses. Those that (coughs) magnify themselves and those that magnify the Lord and the outcome of both of these activities is very different. Let me just focus for a wee while on this idea of exalting the Lord in song. And I want to focus in on Mary in Luke chapter 1 and in fact in Luke chapter 1 and 2 there are three songs we could have looked at there's Mary's which we all do there's Zechariah's and the Simeon's. and each one of these songs actually give us different aspects of the glory and greatness of God but we'll focus in on uh, Mary's and just the little section of it that we read now remember who this is this is a young Jewish girl who seems to know God far better than any of us do. She magnifies the Lord's mercy and his righteous judgments. She's probably no older than 15, maybe 16 at a push. And she spoke this and sang this song. That's what it is really, it's a hymn. Now remember this, there was no such thing as a printing press when she was alive. So she did not have a Bible. And the likelihood is that most people in her community couldn't read and write anyway. (laughs) She had it was unlikely she would have even a copy of the scriptures in her home. Unlikely. But she had hidden the word of God in her heart of that there is no question there are very clear allusions to Old Testament scriptures in this passage Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 1 2, Psalm 107 I've referred to already (coughs) Genesis, the whole account of the patriarchal blessings um, she refers to them, she must have known about them how would she know? where did she get this from? We don't know, but it would seem likely that she would get it from the synagogue. For that was the place where the priests would teach the scriptures to the local communities. She no doubt had memorized these scriptures because she repeated them and she referred to them. She had fed in the word of God as a teenager, she had memorized on the word the of God as a teenager and she meditated on the word of God now we understand this is inspired scripture but never forget this that it had to go in before it could go out it didn't just suddenly miraculously be implanted like that God inspired yes but this was in her that was brought out out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks according to the law well, again, here's my. I think this is maybe my last little reference to what I've been reading around this subject because I was reading about this idea of memorisation when you're young, and it's a lost part of young Christian upbringing. I think that shows my age because I can remember. <laughs> I don't know if, if people do it anymore. That's the truth. Maybe you do, and maybe this is uh, an incorrect statement. And good if it is. I can remember when I was um, in Sunday school and what we called, strangely, the happy hour at Bridget Weir on a Tuesday night. <laughs> it was happy and it was for an hour, but it's different connotations. But anyway, it's no longer the happy hour. But I can remember um, we were given passages to memorise. John 10, Psalm 121. John 3, John 14, Psalm 110. remember them. And it was terrifying because when the soiree took place, you were lined up on the platform and you had to perform. And it was terrifying because <laughs> you It was a terrifying experience. But the Word of God most definitely went in. Psalm 46, just coming back to my mind as I say these things. Screet all. It. And I can't quote it all back to you, but it's in, it's familiar, and it does come back to you. And, of course, that's when I get confused and I'm reading the ESV at times because what's in here is all AV, and it just comes right out, and so on. Well, that got me thinking, I was reading this little story about someone that I'd never heard of before, and I'm going to read it to you, about this very thing. It's about a, a woman missionary in New Guinea in World War II. She was from America. She was married, and... Her name is of course Darlene, that's of course American, and her second name was Rose. She wrote a little book actually which you can read called Evidence Not Seen, about her experience. She was a missionary to New Guinea as I've said, and she was there when the Japanese invaded. Um, Let me just read this to you. She She married when she was 19 to a man who was already in the mission field. And they went to the interior of New Guinea and established a new mission station at 19. And it was near a previously unevangelised tribe that had been discovered just a few years earlier. She was the first white woman any of them had ever seen. And she grew to love the local people dearly. When World War II broke out in that part of the world, her and her husband chose to stay and the Japanese soon took control of the area and put them under house arrest. Later, the soldiers herded all foreigners into prisoner war camps and separated the men from the women and the children. And that was the last time she saw her husband alive. He was tortured and he died in a prison camp during the Second World War and she never saw him again. During the next four years she endured separation from her husband and ultimately widowhood. After receiving the news of her husband's suffering and death, she was accused of being a spy by the Japanese and taken to a maximum security prison and kept in solitary confinement. Written over the door of her cell were the words, "This person must die." She says she was put on death row. Frequently, she was taken to interrogation room and accused of spying. And each time upon her denial, interrogators would strike her at the base of the neck and on her forehead just above her nose repeatedly. There were times she thought they had broken her neck. She walked around permanently with two black eyes, but as she says, bloodied but not unbowed. She never wept in front of her captors, but when she was back in her cell, she would weep and pour out her heart to the Lord. And on each occasion, she would hear the whisper within her soul, My grace is sufficient for thee. As a child and a young person, she wrote, She had a driving compulsion to memorize the Word of God. She says, In the cell, I was grateful now for those days in Sunday school, when I had memorized many single verses, complete chapters and Psalms, and sometimes whole books of the Bible. In the years that followed, I reviewed the scriptures often in my mind. The Lord fed me with the living bread that never died. It had been stored against the day when the fresh supply was cut off by the loss of my Bible. He brought daily comfort and encouragement, yes, and joy to my heart through the knowledge of his word. I never needed the scriptures more than in those months on death row. But since so much of his word was there in my heart, the removal of the Bible was not the punishment anticipated by my captors she survived the war she remarried and guess where she went back to New Guinea where she served the Lord for many years until she died as an old lady you see like Mary there's a modern day version of what Mary must have done as a teenager put the word of God into her very being by memorising and reading and pondering the scriptures What did Mary know of God? Well, here's just a few things, and I won't be long. If you look at Luke chapter 1 in these few verses, you discover this that she knew he was Lord. My soul doth magnify the Lord. One writer said this, this is where theology becomes biography and ends up in doxology. There's another belter. And just think about that. And so theology that's in the Bible becomes biography lived out in your life that becomes doxology praise to his name. She says, my God is Lord. When things are difficult, how difficult was it for Mary? Think about the news she just received. Unbelievable. Think about the issues facing her, at her age, without a husband, the shame, the whole lot. You would think maybe worry would become her god. No, you would think maybe finances would become her god. Or reputation would be the main thing, no. Or her well-being, or her comfort, she says, no. She says, God is my Lord. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Secondly, she knew God not only as her Lord, but as her Savior. And this is the proof text, if you need any, that Mary needed salvation as much as any other individual. And she knew God as her Savior. She needed a Savior, and she rejoiced in her Savior. Notice also, she knew that God is, what the theologians call, omniscient, knew everything. For she says, that very thing he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. He's looked on the humble estate of me, his servant. What she's saying is just this, my God knows absolutely everything about me. She says, the Lord is my God and God is my saviour and God knows everything about me. He knows that I'm young and he knows That I'm expecting a child. And he knows that my reputation is going to be destroyed. And he knows that my life is going to be difficult and complex. And no one else cared about her, really. No one's paying attention to a teenage girl in Nazareth. She's single, she's not married, she's young, she's not old, she's poor, she's not rich. But she says this, it doesn't matter because God knows everything about me. God is also respectful towards her. From now on, she says this, all generations shall call me blessed. For the next 30 years or so, she's going to have a bad reputation, but God is going to vindicate this woman. And for all generations, they will look and respect this woman, Mary, as we do. And her dignity will be restored by God. Notice as well, she understands that God is mighty. Verse 49, for he that is mighty. And we thought a little about that and I won't go over it again. He's powerful, he's mighty, he's the one who can do great things. But notice this. God is personal to her. He that is mighty hath done to me great things. And holy is his name. I love this. You know, some people find it helpful, I used to do it, I don't do it now, but some people find it helpful to keep a journal. I've actually got a copy of my dad's, my dad kept a diary, and when he passed, um, his drawer in his desk was full of these diaries, and uh, I kept some of them, my mum gave them to me. And so I have um, a Bible, um, just very similar to this, that was his, his preaching Bible, and I have his diaries from some of his years and I have his preaching notes, his preaching notes are voluminous, unbelievable, I couldn't believe he preached so many sermons, Um, literally hundreds of sermons, and all in a, if you knew my dad, all in a black wee flip um, headed uh, notepad that sat on the side of his bible, but he kept a diary, and it was more a journal than a diary, it wasn't really pouring out you know, his heart. My dad wasn't like that. It was more a kind of factual account of where he'd been and what the weather was like and how many folk had been at the meeting and what he'd preached on and all this kind of (laughs) stuff. But it's interesting nonetheless. But in that diary, I discovered that he'd taken a note of the day I got saved. And I didn't actually know the date until I discovered it in one of his diaries. And that was obviously my dad noting down a, a, a very significant date to him in his diary, journaled it. Some people find it helpful, maybe you would. If you are like Mary and you would be able to keep a note of the very great things that God has done to you in your life. Sometimes we forget. Some people do it by prayer requests and answers to prayer, different ways of doing it. Some people note down things that he has forgiven. You need a few books to put that in. Things he's forgiven. Things he has taught you. How he's changed you. Relationships he's brought you into. Circumstances he's saved you from. Opportunities he's called you to. And Mary says this I can testify, he had done to me great things. Great things. And she finishes with this Holy is his name. And in case you think Mary was very self centred, the rest of her song is focused on what God had done to others, and particularly his people. And she broadens out the scope of her worship, and she looks outward as well as inward. And she is an amazing example of worship. Well, as you think about these three words, maybe, or hopefully, they'll mean a bit more than perhaps when you saw the invitation and wondered what this subject would be. Education. We need to learn in order to worship. No shortcut. Exaltation. There needs to be joy. We need to be characterized by joy. And exaltation. We ought not to exalt ourselves. We ought in our worship to exalt the Lord. May he give us help to do so. Let's just pray.